Wednesday morning. Today, we're talking about abortion, and John wants to take us on a multi-part series where he helps us think through it so that we ourselves can understand it and understand how to talk about it. So now John's going to paint a picture for what he's going to talk about today and what he's going to talk about in the next future episodes. Uh, The first part will be to set up the fact that there is such a thing as an ethical abortionist, that what we're talking about here is is a competition to answer the question, what is the truth about the world? And there are at least two functional ways that appear in the medical school. And I want to show that they can be rationally negotiated, but it requires some restraint and some uh, discussion and argument about how you set that up to get to the point where both the pro-choicers and the pro-lifers, instead of insisting that they are all right, can understand that if you believe that there is no God and that life is ultimately absurd, you go one way, and if you believe there is a God who loves us and desires to live with us forever, you go another way. So a bigot is the person who will not listen to the other side. It's where we're at at the moment. Anybody who closes down a truthful discussion is a bigot because truth changes discussions. And at least you can recognize that the other person is just as rational as you. There are at least two rationalities in the world. Rationality starts with a premise. When we have completed that, which will be section one, I will have divided the school into three groups. The amoral Darwinist, there's no morality in Darwin. Uh, the secular utilitarians who believe that whether they thought about it or not, that ultimately the lie, the world is absurd, and that leads to one way of doing things. And the religious uh, component, which in our world is largely Christian, but uh, the Judeo-Christian end of the religious spectrum uh, would uh, agree that abortion is not something you should do. The East is a different matter. Then in the next section, I want after that, uh, I want to discuss how you set up the discussion from then on, starting with Aquinas' insight, that you always begin an argument by stating your opponent's position more clearly than they can, and then deconstructing it to put, to make your own position. Uh, and then, finally, uh, I may introduce the data that you need to know en route in that, but there's some data that you need to no, at the end. So at the end, uh, I will talk about further reading and how you keep up to date on, on these issues. I hope that gives you enough clarity to see that I've touched on this subject before, but it really needs to be done carefully. You know, I, I, I've done this lecture many times and it takes at least an hour, uh, but it always ends in silence. And it's not a silence of anger. It's a silence of, well, I haven't thought about it that way. After these three parts, it could be more, but after these three-part talks that John's going to do, it would be great to field questions from you guys. Um, And it'd be great if we could collect those. If you want to add questions, I'll add a form in the description. If you're watching this on YouTube or on your podcast podcast platform, there'll be a form that you can click on where you could submit your questions. And then it could be fun to have kind of a Q&A with you guys, with John at the end of of the series. Perfect. We hope you guys are looking forward to this, and that's what we're going to jump into right now. If you want a, a little excitement, 
uh, and a little adrenaline rush. Talking about abortion in an academic environment will do that for you. Um, I had no desire to do that. And I didn't talk about abortion, in part because of my own guilt, but also because um, I could see that it wasn't the easiest thing in the world to talk about, and I had no desire for flack. I lived in a very comfortable ivory tower uh, until I was in my 40s. Uh, and that's when God started to get on my case in various ways. And one of them was the issue of abortion. Um, I'd never spoken about it, uh, but I knew that I should because I w had been pro-choice and I wasn't anymore. Um, so I was thinking about it. And then one afternoon, uh, I had no interest in what was going on in my laboratory. Uh, it was just, I, I was dead as far as I was concerned at that point. And I'd got good people working there. I said, I'm going to my office and I'm going to shut the door and take the telephone off the hook. Please don't disturb me. And I did that. And I asked myself the question, how ought I to talk about abortion if I'm going to do it? What is the right way to do it? It's obviously a very, very important issue in our world. And it carries a great deal of emotional tension. So is there a way that one can take that tension down so that we can get to the point where we have a reasonable, civilized conversation? Now, I had been pro-choice over rubella babies before we had a rubella vaccine. You don't even think about it now. Everybody, especially the girls, must have a rubella vaccine uh, for their own good and for the good of their children because rubella at a critical portion of pregnancy can lead to a very, very high incidence of major neurological and cardiac complications. So way back in the, what would it be, the 60s, um, I was doing... Uh, uh, a rotation through infectious diseases in uh, the late stages of my residency. Uh, residency lasts a lot longer in Britain than it does in uh, uh, America. And uh, every now and again, one of the problems one would meet would be a woman coming in with a rash and saying, I'm pregnant. Women knew that rashes in pregnancy could be very bad. Um... So the, it was good that they came to see you. And the interview would be very short, the first one. Yes, uh, this is a rash that's compatible with rubella, but there are many viruses that crea create similar rashes. So we need some blood today, some blood in a week's time, and then I'll see you a couple of days later, and we can talk our way through the whole thing. Uh, I can't disabuse you of your anxieties uh, properly until I have that data. So... A week or so later, we would meet, and I, in most cases, would say, no, it's not rubella, so go on with your pregnancy and uh, enjoy the baby. But every now and again, it was rubella. And then the next thing was to work out exactly where in the uh, process of uh, the pregnancy mom was. And the risk could be anything up to 90%. That's not easy to say to anyone, 
and what we were taught to say, uh, what the medical ethos had developed as a way out of this, abortion was illegal. But what we did was we said, um, this pregnancy's gone wrong, hasn't it? And every mum would nod, yes, yes it has, if she wasn't already crying. Say, well, we can't cure it, but we can allow you to start again. Would you like to do that? We never used the word abortion. We used the phrase start again. Whenever you use a euphemism to talk about something, you're hiding something important from yourself. Um, and they, of course, said yes and said, well, you'll have to come into hospital very briefly um, and, um, and then you would start again. And, of course, uh, what I did was arrange for her to go to the gynecologist. It was done in the hospital on the ordinary list as a DNC. It wasn't called an abortion. Many DNCs are done for other reasons, so it went into that mixture. And I felt no guilt. Note, it was felt. Uh, I was modern. I was consulting my feelings, not using my mind. Uh, and I didn't use my mind on that issue uh, for nearly 20 years. Even when the guy I chose to deliver our first two children, who was a wonderful Christian guy and a superb obstetrician gynecologist, he never got the job he should have had because he, was, he would not do abortions. And very, very few people like doing abortions. You pay in your own soul. Uh, but he as a Christian simply would not do so. And so nobody wanted to have him on the faculty with them because that would mean they had to do more abortions if he wasn't going to do any. So he never got the job he should have had. He ended up doing family practice with a specialization in obstetrics. I never knew more about him. I can't even remember his surname. Uh, I would love to know what happened in the rest of his life. But he delivered our first two children, and uh, I was delighted to have him in charge of that process. But then we lost touch. Uh, I went into an academic world and then to Jamaica for seven years and then came to North America. So uh, uh, we had no reason to run into one night. Anyway, on this afternoon, uh, I was thinking back to that process and realizing I failed to ask the right question. Instead of consulting my feelings and saying, well, I feel good about what I've done, I should have asked the question, can I think this through in a way that a Christian should? Can I make sense of it from a Christian point of view? By the end of the afternoon, I knew that I could, but it wasn't what I wanted it to be. It, I, I thought I could see the beginnings of a process that would work, but I didn't want to get drawn into this kettle of fish. Uh, talk to Robert Spitzer, my Jesuit uh, friend, and I told him where I'd got to, and he said, well, you need to do it. Uh, I think that will work, which wasn't what I wanted to hear. So the first thing you have to do if you're going to talk about abortion is you have to start talking about other things first. If you jump straight in, you will ignite a conflagration. But uh, most often I've done it with medical students. And my first question uh, 
uh, is to the students. The first time I ever did it, actually, was in Wayne State uh, Medical School in Detroit, which is a dominantly black medical school. And they, my wife had set up a website. They'd seen that I was going to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they said, can you talk to us in Wayne State first or on the way back? Because you, you have to go through Detroit to get there from Ottawa. I said, fine, if you'll drive me from uh, Detroit to uh, Ann Arbor, that would save them coming to pick me up. They, they said, we'll do that. So, and I said, uh, what do you want me to talk about? And they said, well, we want you to talk about abortion on January the 23rd, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And, and I said, I don't do that. The response was, but we've heard you speak. We think you could, to which I responded, flattery will get you nowhere. Uh, but then they said, we've been praying about it. And I hadn't been praying about it, but I couldn't get it out of my mind. So that, that's prayer too, in a different sort of way. Uh, the flow is in the opposite direction. So I said, make sure there's an exit door by the lectern and have the car engine running. When I, as soon as I finish the lecture, I'll be out of there. I shouldn't have bothered because it ended in total silence for a few minutes, which is the normal response. I, I have yet to have a single aggressive question at the end of that lecture, and I've given it, oh, I don't know, well over 50 times anyway. What happened? Well, I was being very careful, so I asked the students, um, I've only been in your university I said, a little while, but I, I need to know something about you before we go ahead with this lecture. Uh, the first thing uh, uh, I want to ask you about is trust. How many of your colleagues in your class do you genuinely trust? I would say trust at the level you'd send your grandma to see them, so to speak, or your mum. And the answer in those days, which was 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago or more, and uh, gosh, it's more than that, um, was about half, perhaps a little over half of the class. I said, I guess the ones you don't trust aren't at this lecture, to which they nodded. Yes, no, they're not. Some of them were, of course, but they were not admitting to it. So I said, all right, so you see already you have a problem. You know from daily conflict contact that some people are not as trustworthy as you would like them to be and it's only got worse in the in the ensuing years uh, uh, the lowest level being uh, somebody saying I've only been in medical school a few months but I haven't found anyone I trust yet and certainly the graduates who went from Augustine College to medical school we send about uh, one doctor a year to medical school out of the class uh, uh, one of them in particular wrote back and said, I've been told in a, a well-known uh, medical school that shall not be named uh, not to take my ethics into class but to leave them in the parking lot. That's what told by a surgeon. Not good news. And, and trust is at the heart of our culture and we're now in the process of making technological adjustments like intrusive uh, viewing of other people's uh, 
contacts uh, on various websites. This is all a, an attempt to control society by technology, whereas what we had for 2,000 years was a society that was controlled by the fact that it lived and shared in a common story of meaning. That is now down to probably 30% and not very deep. That tacit knowledge uh, meant that you could trust people because everybody lived in the same story and so their responses were understood. In Britain, they picked it up when I was a child because the Bible was read in school all the while. The silliest thing that was done in North America, not silliest, it was, it was orchestrated and vicious, was to take the greatest book in the Western world, the Bible, out of school. There's no way they can justify that intellectually. They cannot possibly argue that it's an unimportant book. They're against it so much because it's the most important book. But it's not taught to the children. The result is inevitably the decay of a culture. A culture is held together as from the time of the Tower of Babel, God divided the languages of the earth so that nations could emerge. And nations, as opposed to groups of people who actually live together uh, for commercial reasons, nations are held together by a common language and a common ethos. Now, without them, they will inevitably uh, fracture and break down. Ours has lasted longer than most, but whether it will continue will depend, in my view, on whether church becomes real again, whether we recognize that we are fallen creatures and that has to be the start of every day and we ask for guidance and help. And then, then at the end of the day, we repent for what we've done wrong and know the reality of forgiveness. Um, and that repentance, the real one, is a gift. When people suddenly are overwhelmed with the reality of what's been with them all their lives, but suddenly they see it for what it is and its alienating power with respect to God. And they break down. And they can be picked up and transformed in a moment. And then they have to start reconstructing the world. Now, at least we have the history of 2,000 years of how it can be done well and how it can be done wrong, wrongly. So that's where we're at. So uh, talking to the students that remain, having got rid of the amoral group, one of the three groups in, in society. If you're a Darwinian, there's no morals in Darwin. So if Darwin is your saint, uh, there are no morals because you cannot get from physical facts to moral injunction. There's no, no journey that you can take which joins those two. Um, but the way forward is if you believe on the Lord Jesus as the Son of God, the way that that belief is expressed is that you become aware of just how inadequate you are and how unable you are even to approach him. Uh, Paul, not Paul, Luke writing the Acts of the Apostles about the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile that we know of to become a Christian, is, is amazed. He's, he's describing what the old Jews made of this and then they said to one another, then to the Gentiles also God has given the gift of repentance. In the early church, they understood that repentance is not something we choose to do. This is putting us at the center of the story again. 
it's something God does to us if we open ourselves up. The moment we say, I am a sinner, Lord, forgive me, that's the start. It's not the repentance. True repentance is deeper than that. Uh, the really deep repentance, which I know far too little of, will be accompanied by tears. And that's when the new life begins. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't get to where you want from where you are now. First, you must be touched by the Holy Spirit so that you can understand and understand at a deeper level than you've ever known before. And the great saints of the church, not saints as uh, declared by uh, men, but saints who are saints because uh, their, their real contact with Christ was recognized by the people around them. Uh, that's not what Paul means by saints, though. He means saints, people who've said that Jesus is Lord and know that it's true because they've been given the gift of repentance and they're living. The life that I now live is not mine, but Christ liveth in me is the end of that story. That's what Paul could write later in his life. Uh, I hope to be able to say that at some stage. Um, I'm on a journey like everyone else. So, uh, one can have a little bit of that discussion and you have to be watching the audience well to see how much you can have at that stage. But the next important step is to say, well, the rest of you in this class, you, do you trust one another for most of your practice of medicine? Could you send your mum to see them? With, of course, one exception. Um, and the answer is yes. As I said, but when it comes to abortion and euthanasia too now, but abortion way back. Do you agree about that? Oh, no. The heads shake. No, I said, this divides you, doesn't it? So the real question must surely be this. What is it, philosophically, not emotionally, what is the basis of that difference which divides you? You, you practice ethical medicine in all other respects or try to, but over this issue, you cannot even agree what good and evil are. So you have different understandings of how the world works. So the first issue is this. What do you need to believe about the nature of life to be, in inverted commas, an ethical abortionist and be at peace with yourself? And what do you need to believe to reach the opposite conclusion? It is what you believe that sets up the rational consequence. So let's do it this way. Imagine Mother Teresa, and I used to choose Henry Morgenthal, who was a Jewish abortionist in Canada who lost all his family except one brother in Auschwitz. I entirely understood why he didn't believe in God after that. And so uh, he was an ethical abortionist in the sense that he believed life was absurd. What else could you believe after the Holocaust? So the only thing you could do to be a decent person is to increase the amount of happiness in the world. He was a secular utilitarian, and it, it sounds crass, but he wanted to increase the net happiness in the world with every action that he made. Mother Teresa, on the other hand, did not take that view in the same way. Uh, she had a longer view. She didn't believe that life was absurd. She believed, believed that life was leading to real life and that this life will only be understood backwards, although it has to be lived forwards. So 
Imagine them sit, standing together and a young woman is asking for an abortion because she's got pregnant at an inconvenient time. Now, both Henry Morgenthaler and Mother Teresa believe that there are two lives present in this issue. Henry Morgenthaler was not a liar. He said, yeah, I snuff out human life. Uh, he didn't pretend it was something else. That's plain biological nonsense. There are two human lives, but at very, very different levels of development. But one has all potential, and the other one is already on a downhill slope. So what's the difference? Well, Henry sees two ultimately absurd lives. They have no meaning. He doesn't believe there's any meaning after death. This world is a problematic place, and you make the best of it. A sad sort of philosophy, but one that certainly allows abortion a role. He sees two lives, one self-conscious, the other unself-conscious. When he has snuffed out the unself-conscious life, the net happiness in the world has increased because an unconscious human being uh, who hasn't yet reached that level of self-consciousness uh, is neither happy nor unhappy, but the mother is unhappy. But when her burden is removed, at least from his perspective, she should be happier. So the net happiness in the world has increased, therefore the action is ethical. But Mother Teresa sees a young woman who is about to put her soul in jeopardy. She's about to do something which she will have to live with for the rest of her life and for which she will have to give an account to God. And it would be better not to go down that path. It is, in fact, the more loving action if her view of the world is true because Mother Teresa wants everyone to get to heaven, wants them to know Christ in that, at that level and to... Help them do something that will make that more difficult cannot possibly be described as loving. So if you inhabit that story, the best thing you can do for that young woman is help her through to having the child and either living with the consequences in her life or giving it up for adoption. There are many people waiting for children. Two worlds, different consequences. And which one you inhabit matters. Now, I hope, I will say, that by this stage, I have got you to the point where you will agree to this proposition. The word bigot should never be used in the context of this argument. Because a bigot is someone who will not acknowledge that someone else has a different point of view that has just as much right to be heard as the one you hold at present. So the council culture people are bigoted in the very first order. They will not allow certain thoughts to be expressed. That's the, that's the essence of bigotry. And the, the students invariably not. So if anybody starts closing this discussion down, they are the bigots, and you should call them that. So there's no space for the word bigot in this, in this discussion because both sides have to be heard and they have to be understood as ethical and consequential from a point of view of what the world is and what it is about. But we don't have to stop there, and we'll move on to that next. But I'll stop at this point for today. There's enough for you to think about there. If you can change your life to that degree and learn to make that argument, that would be good. 
Well, thank you, John. And thank you guys all for listening. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast and we would love to hear your thoughts. You can feel free to click the links in the description below, reach out to us, share your thoughts. What are you, what are you thinking? With that being said, we appreciate you guys. We'll see you all next week on Wednesday. Thank you.